Acts chapter 15. The advancing kingdom looks like it's about to hit a speed bump. When we read verse 1 of our text, some were teaching that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is a dangerous message. This is real trouble. Now, it's a little easier maybe for our minds to grasp the trouble of earlier chapters, things like Herod laid violent hands on Peter and James. That sounds really bad. Perhaps worse is the false teaching that can infiltrate the church. These Jews were saying that circumcision was an additional condition for being saved. Now, At face value, that sounds like a blatant and crass addition of works to grace. But with a little understanding, we would say that's true, but at least we would recognize why the Jews were thinking this. Remember, for a thousand years and more, the Israelites knew themselves as God's covenant people And the sign of that covenant with this people was circumcision. So it just fit in their minds that if you are going to belong to God, you must have this sign, the sign being circumcision. But now, what was once a sign of the significance, God's covenant, has has been so entrenched in their way of thinking that now, even to belong to God, you must have this sign. It's a ruinous contamination of the good news. The gospel is good news because it is the message that God saves us by his grace. We don't have to work for it. Oh yes, we repent and we believe, but we do not earn We do not merit. Now, some of these teachers are saying, yes, it's by God's grace, but you need to do this one thing as well. Paul and Barnabas meet this trouble head on. First, they contest this false teaching there in Antioch, but that is such a dispute there that it's bigger than even that local church And so they decide this needs to be taken to Jerusalem, kind of the mother church, so to speak. We need the apostles to give this attention. Now, we have to think of where we are in the history of the church. Remember, all these churches that are being started don't don't have Bibles from which pastors are preaching. Some of them may have some scrolls of the Old Testament, A few of them are going to begin receiving letters. The earliest would be the letter from James, but likely that hasn't circulated through the churches yet. So how do you you resolve a dispute about doctrine? Well, we go to the source. The foundation of the church, the foundation on which the church is built is God speaking through the apostles and the prophets. 
So the, the resolution of what is true is going to have to get sent up the authority pipeline to the apostles headquartered there at the Church of Jerusalem. So that just helps us understand because there are going to be many passages in the book of Acts and in the letters where we have to remember that this, this understanding of how God was revealing his truth is significant to our understanding of the miraculous gifts and why the signs and wonders were given. And it sounds like we're just entering into the debate with the charismatics to say those signs and wonders were given to confirm the message. But it's texts like this that show us that's essential because they don't have a standard of truth in their hands. They don't have the compiled scriptures. So somebody came teaching in the church that you have to be circumcised to be saved. And they didn't go to Galatians and read justification by faith. They didn't have Galatians yet. They could go to the Old Testament scriptures and try to find something there. And they could go to the source of authority. An absolute truth of God that came through the apostles. You had to know those apostles were trustworthy when they were speaking what they said was God's truth. And so until the Bible is compiled for all of God's church to have as the standard, God confirmed his truth in those apostles and prophets. Rarely is this text even discussed in some of those disputes. Because the practicality of the need for confirming signs and wonders is often overlooked for just the dispute about interpretation of certain texts in Corinthians or something. If we had lived in that era, we would have understood exactly why this dispute, seeming to be unresolved yet, is going to get sent to the mother church of the apostles for their final word on the matter. It's a lot of church history that may prove helpful in some of our studies later on in the book of Acts. The task then of this council of church leaders, the apostles and elders there at Jerusalem, their task was to get the gospel right. What is the good news? And how do we receive it? And they're looking to these apostles to clarify exactly what is necessary. Do we have to become as Gentiles like the Jews through circumcision in order to be included like the Jews in the family of God? They have to get this right. And as the text unfolds, we see that they do. Every other religion in the world has a message of do. Do something. Please your God, whoever you say it is, somehow. Do something to earn a status, another level, some kind of eternal blessing. Biblical Christianity stands alone with a message of done. Done, finished by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has kept the law, establishing righteousness, he has died on the cross, establishing forgiveness of sins. He has risen from the dead, establishing eternal life. All of those 
for those who believe. Done. It is finished were Jesus' words on the cross. The gospel is the good news of a completed work in which we rest. It's not a message of a work that you need to do. It would be somewhat good news to know there is something I need to do. At least I would know the path to walk. But that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is the work has been completed. Your task is to find rest in Christ, to trust his work on your behalf. So our theme is simple. It's the task that was laid at the council's feet. It's our task as well. We must get the gospel right. As a witness, you must get the gospel right. Not that every conversation that would fall under the umbrella of witness gets all the way down to the gospel itself, who Jesus is and what he's done. But if you're going to pursue your gospel witness in conversation and relationships with unbelievers, you must get the gospel right. From Acts 15, I want you to see seven observations for getting the gospel right. It's simply walking through the text and thinking through What did this council have to do and how did they get there? How did they get the gospel right? Number one, getting the gospel right is the business of the church. It's the business of the church. By that I mean this is the main idea of the church, to get the gospel right. A church can do a lot of other things well. And there are churches all over the world that do spectacular kind of work in their facilities, in their fundraising, in their charitable work, in their programs. But if they get the gospel wrong, all of that is empty. There are a lot of churches that get the gospel right and do a lot of other things wrong. You're sitting in one of those, perhaps. At least that's our goal. First, get the gospel right. If there's more to work on, we'll try to give attention to that as well. But the business of the church is proclaim Jesus as the hope of salvation. We must get this right. We see that this is the business of the church because, verse 1, these teachers came to teach the brothers. It's the context of the church. Verse 2, Paul and Barnabas are guarding the doctrine of the church, they're gatekeepers. Verse 3, they are sent by the church to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders, leaders, foundation stones of the church. Verse 4, they are welcomed there by the church. And then the church and its leaders get down to business. We need to clarify this gospel hope. The business of the church is the gospel. You say, well, I I thought we as the church gathered on Sunday as believers. Isn't the gospel for unbelievers? No, we've gathered for the gospel, which is this good news of Jesus. We think of his saving righteousness, his atoning work. We think of his resurrection. We sing of it. We think of what that means for us to be able to sing hallelujah, which is 
simply praise the Lord for this resurrection hope that is ours. We gather as the church because of the gospel and then we'll disperse to all of our places shining that light of the gospel. This is the church's business. Now, to be clear, the church is not a business. The church is not even accurately called a religious organization. We are a body, the body of Christ. We are a family. We are a a collection of witnesses all testifying to the same glorious truth. We must get the gospel right. The church must not be about making money, about winning elections, about Christian education, about moralistic living. All of those things may fall under some umbrella of the function of the church in its application to life, but those are not the primary mission of the church. The church must get the gospel right. We must be strong in doctrine. You might be thinking, did you just change gears from the gospel to doctrine? Not really. Different words, but we're in the same gear. Because remember verse 1, some men came teaching that to be saved, you had to be circumcised. You see, the gospel is taught. It's proclaimed. It's shared. We have to get that right. And the getting of that right, by definition, is sound doctrine. We know what the Bible teaches about the holy character of God. We know what the Bible does in comparing the sinfulness of man to that holy standard. And then the Bible teaches amazing grace of salvation through Jesus Christ. It it builds a bridge between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and that bridge is Jesus, his work. We must get the gospel right. I think this is why Paul would tell Timothy in his letter, give attention to doctrine, for by it you will save yourself and those who hear you. You get the gospel wrong and make it about works, and you've, you've sabotaged the good news. Anything the church does with a contaminated gospel is empty. A poorly organized, poorly programmed, poorly run church that gets the gospel right will find Paul in Galatians saying, I rejoice, and at least the gospel's preached. There may be a lot of stuff I don't like. And all your life, you're going to have to wrestle with attending a church and which church do I go to? And you're going to find stuff they get wrong. But you can put up with that if they get the gospel right. But don't bask and enjoy anything in a church if they get the gospel wrong. This is the business of the church to get the gospel right. Number two, getting the gospel right is worthy of a fight. Look at verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. No small dissension. 
Luke uses that word elsewhere for the riots that broke out in the cities. Now, to be clear, Paul and Barnabas aren't turning over cars, breaking glass storefront windows, burning down city blocks. That's not the kind of riot Luke's implying here. That's why the same word elsewhere translated rioting is here translated dissension. It carries the same weight, the same drama. So picture those rioting crowds. You've seen them in recent years on the news and people are just caught up in this emotion and they're, and they're screaming and yelling and they're smashing things. There's all of, the, all of self is poured into this cause. Well, all that now is captured in a different context, a little more civilized. False teachers are saying, to be saved, you got to be circumcised. You got to keep all the law of Moses. And Paul and Barnabas riot. They pour all of self into this cause. No, that's not true. You're making good news bad news. You've got to do, do, do. And that's not the gospel. The gospel, the pure, unadulterated gospel was worth fighting for. It was worth dividing over. You see, this text is reminding us there will always be those who tamper with the gospel or just flat out contaminate it. That means there must always be those who are ready and willing and able to clarify exactly what the gospel is. To call them to the biblical definition of grace that's found in Jesus. You might not be the apologist that can answer every question about Islam and Buddhism and secularism and everything else, all these worldviews, but you can specialize in knowing the grace that's found in Jesus. There must be those who are ready and willing to dissent, to debate, to stand up and say, no, I, I think you've missed something. You got that wrong. Martin Luther said, unity if possible, but truth at all cost. Unity's great, but you can't... You, just last week we studied the gospel's division. Jesus saying, I came to bring a sword and to turn father against son, mother against daughter. The gospel divides. So unity if possible, and that's verse 1. Here's the false teachers, verse 2, there's dissension, there's debate. You've got it wrong, we've got to fix this. But eventually, we're going to come to a decision and have to tell these men, either you change what you're teaching or you're not part of the church, because that's not the gospel. Unity if possible, truth at all costs. Getting the gospel right is worthy of a fight. Number three. Getting the gospel right is essential to our evangelism. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Paul and Barnabas are remembering God's work among the Gentiles. How, as Paul would write to the Thessalonian church, they turned from idols to the living God. 
It was a conversion. They don't have to work and serve these false gods. They can turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son who's coming from heaven. There was a transformation, a conversion that was being celebrated. They once served sin and idolatry. Now they're serving righteousness, the righteousness of the living God. And this conversion rests on a gospel of grace. God changes hearts. It's not of works. It's not a a boast that we have, that we are so much better than our neighbors, foolish neighbors, staying home on a Sunday morning, sleeping in, indulging in all the other family stuff. We're so much smarter than them for recognizing Jesus is worth worshiping. But the scriptures are saying, wait a minute, you you can't even boast in your faith. You can't even boast in your current standing in Jesus. You can only boast in Jesus, in his cross, in his work that that cross represents. This is the good news of our evangelism. You don't have to do. You have to trust. You don't have to keep all the law. You don't have to be circumcised. That's, circumcision was listed in verse 1, but look at verse 5. When they get to Jerusalem, they realized some believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and it is necessary to order them to keep the law of Moses. You have to get right before you can be counted as God's people. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you're counted as God's people as he draws you to salvation and then the rest of your living is that sanctification process of getting right. Our witness must actually be good news. We can't be telling people, oh, you have to do this, you have to give up your smoking, you have to go to church, you have to do all these things. That's what it means to be a Christian. We kind of got it turned around. All that stuff comes after. We've got to show them Christ, and then once they see him, they'll become like him. He'll change them. Announce the good news. God will do for you as a sinner what you can't do for yourself. That law-keeping you can't do, Jesus has done. Pleasing God that you can't do, there's none that seeks after him. We've all fallen short of his glory. Jesus has done. So getting the gospel right is essential to our evangelism. If we're going to have good news, it has to be the good news of what God does for us. And that's what they were celebrating. God has changed these Gentiles into his own people, fulfilling what the prophet Hosea said. Those who were called not my people are now called my people. Those who had not known mercy now are celebrating the mercy of God, singing as we sang today, wonderful, merciful Savior. Who would have thought that I don't have to work for my salvation, but that I would be rescued by a sacrificed lamb? 
Getting the gospel right is essential to our evangelism. The more we understand the good news of not working for our salvation, the more we'll be ready to tell others about it. Number four, getting the gospel right means focusing on God. The argument that unfolds beginning in verse 7 is that God has already resolved this debate. He's already answered this question. Peter says, verse 7, after the debate, he stands up and says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. It's a long sentence, but it starts with God chose. God ordained something. God willed something. And it ends with his will being unfolded, that the Gentiles would hear and believe. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. The argument is this. Guys, you're saying these Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved. But what has God already done? What has he said? God has brought Gentiles into his family. He knew their hearts that they had believed the gospel, so he poured out his spirit on them, confirming that they belonged to him, and he didn't require them to be circumcised. Verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them. When these Gentiles, like Cornelius, where Peter was staying when he had the vision of the Gentile food that was off limits to the kosher Jews. When Cornelius and all of his household and friends were saved, God poured out his spirit on them. And Peter is saying he made no distinction between those Gentiles who were not circumcised and we Jews who are. That was not a factor in God's consideration. And he goes on to say in verse 9, because he had cleansed their hearts by faith. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to be circumcised. Circumcision was not on the mind of God in announcing the gospel to Gentiles. They didn't have to do anything. Christ has done it. They rest in Christ and they are in. They are family. The argument begins with hearing about God's work, how he has already already worked among the Gentiles. Peter makes his point in verses 7, 8, 9. Now in verse 10 he says, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter recognizes you're adding weight to the gospel, heavy weight that isn't supposed to be there. You're asking them to do something that our Jewish fathers didn't do well. They didn't keep the law of Moses. They didn't even always abide by the command to be circumcised. We haven't kept the law, Peter says, as the present day Jews. Why are we asking Gentiles to, to be amazed at God's gift of Jesus, but to kind of lend an eye and, and give an eye to the Mosaic law as well? Don't do that. We can't do that because God isn't asking them to do that. 
Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. And it's finally settling in on everybody. The whole assembly is silent. They listen to Paul and Barnabas as they shared more evidence that God had accepted uncircumcised Gentiles because they believed in Jesus. Then James stands up, verse 13. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, we don't have time to study that verse in depth, but just know he has just taken the exact language of the Old Testament, rescue from Egypt. Exodus 2, God visited his people to take a people out of Egypt for his own name's sake. This is is ripping the rug right out from under the Jewish Christians who were saying, you have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. And now he's saying, God has done for the Gentiles exactly what he did for you. He came down and he's snatching them up to make them his own people. And now he's going to cite the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. So the first half of the argument is, what has God done among the Gentiles? And now James kind of drops the concluding bomb and he just says, you know what? God told us he was going to do this. And he chooses a particular text that has a unique link between what God did and why. And it's a text from Amos. And it's quoted here for us. Beginning in verse 16. After this, this is Amos the prophet, but giving the words of God. So God's speaking. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Basically, the prophet is picking up the the Davidic covenant when God promised to David that someone would sit on the throne of David forever. A son of David would sit on the throne forever. Amos is prophesying after the fall of Israel, and it looks like there isn't going to be a son on the throne, but it's coming. It's coming. And when God sends the Messiah... He's going to return, rebuild, rebuild, restore. That's what God's going to do. And Christ makes it clear. He's the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's come to establish the kingdom. Why? Verse 17. So that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. God is going to restore a promise to David in the house of Israel in order to make a way for all the nations of the earth to be saved. It wouldn't be the favorite text of the Jews talking about the Messiah. They're all about the the restoration of the kingdom. Let's rebuild the house of David. Let's get a son of David on the throne. They were all about that, but they didn't care for Amos so much because he connected that purposefully 
to God's desire to bring Gentiles in through that future king. All of this just reminds us that getting the gospel right means we must focus on God. What is God doing and what has God said in his word? And both of those indicate God is all about saving both Jew and Gentile. And that any distinction between them that we would recognize falls away when we come to faith in Jesus. Number five, getting the gospel right demands salvation by grace through faith apart from works. Salvation by grace through faith apart from works. You can mark just the verses where these themes come out. In verse 11, the conclusion Peter draws is that we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as Gentiles will. It's by grace. The root meaning of grace is gift. It's not earned or merited. You didn't work and earn up enough wage. No, it's just a gift. It's grace. But when we think of how that grace is received We say salvation is by grace through faith. Because if if you're looking for an action verb, how does a sinner receive salvation? We have a verb for that. We call it believe. And on the other side of that believing coin is repent. So we would call it repenting faith. So... Technically, yes, we're saying we do something, but it's not a work of merit. The doing is simply trusting, resting in. So as much as it is doing to come in and sit down on a chair, to kind of surrender to gravity and fall into that chair, as much as that's doing, so is faith in Jesus. Not merit, it's just that full trust, faith in Christ. It's through faith, and we saw that in verse 9. As Peter was arguing, he says that God has cleansed their hearts by faith, not by their circumcision. That's not why he accepted them and washed them and adopted them. He did that because of their faith. When Cornelius and his household believed, the text says God knew what was in their heart and he poured out the Holy Spirit. It was by faith. And just to be clear, that grace and faith are apart from any works. That's why Peter argued, why are you putting God to the test and adding this yoke to the Gentiles of doing something? There are no works. There is no yoke here. Why are you putting God to the test? That's simply language for why are you... Why are you trying to prove whether or not salvation is really justification that God grants or uh, decides the verdict from God is justification by faith and not by works. Because when you're saying circumcision, you're saying, wait a minute, it looks like you need to be circumcised to be justified or to be saved. God is saying it's only by faith 
Peter's saying, do you really want to be in this position of testing how committed God is to justification by faith? You don't want to be in that place. You're on the wrong side of an argument that's already been settled. You can be justified only by faith. This is why Paul would write in Galatians, and, and you could read Galatians. A lot of Bible scholars argue, was, did Paul write Galatians before or after this debate? Because so much of Galatians is the same argument. I tend to think it was before because it seems like he would have mentioned this council of the church and its elders and apostles. The point is, as the gospel was spreading, this battle of justification by faith or justification by your works was raging everywhere. And Paul wrote this, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that's because no one will keep the law perfectly. What we're seeing in our text here is much of like what we would see in Roman Catholicism and other worldviews. It, it was not so much a blatant denial of grace as it was an addition of works to some understanding of grace. If you have a Catholic brother or sister, family member, friend, co-worker, if you just said to them, you know what, you believe salvation's by works, they would deny that. They, they will argue clearly against you on that. They will speak of grace. It's, it's just the slight addition that is problematic. That's what's in our text. They weren't saying it's nothing of grace. They were simply saying God saves by grace through Jesus, but, but you have to be circumcised. It's a small addition, really. And yet any addition is a complete compromise, a complete contamination. This is why Paul would continue in Galatians 2 to say, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If there's anything I have to do, then Christ wasn't enough. That's what's at stake in adding anything to the gospel. Number six. Getting the gospel right will produce godly living. We have to get the gospel right. And this is important in our witnessing and in our follow-up with those who profess faith in Christ. The text gets kind of interesting. We concluded, as James was drawing a conclusion on behalf of the council, verse 19, therefore my judgment is, and what we assume, based on the letter that goes out in the rest of the chapter, everyone agreed. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, no circumcision is needed. We don't tell them, be circumcised and obey all the law of Moses, and then you'll be saved. We're not going to trouble them. We're not going to add that yoke to them. But here's what's interesting. We, we see then three, maybe four, depending how we look at them, 
boundaries for rules that they want the Gentiles to keep that seem to flow out of the very law of Moses. So we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. And then if you were to read on, really down through verse 35 is a letter that's written from the council to be dispersed to churches to understand how this debate was resolved. And it was resolved in two ways. One, circumcision is not required for salvation. And two, you should adhere to these standards that are listed in the letter. So what's going on with this list of rules? Because in a letter designed to settle a matter of salvation, do we have to keep these rules or not? Why are there rules in this letter? Remember our point, getting the gospel right produces godly living. The point of the letter was many of these Gentiles are coming out of pagan cultures. Read Corinthians, for example. And the church leaders want the Gentiles and the Jews to both hear something in the letter. The Jews needed to be careful to avoid amending the gospel with Jewish practice. They were saying you have to be circumcised and the council say, no, we're not going to pass an amendment to the gospel that includes circumcision. So the Jews needed to be careful to avoid amending the gospel with Jewish practice. But the Gentiles needed to be careful to avoid offending the gospel with pagan practice. Because they were coming to faith in Jesus and without sound teaching, they're thinking, okay, but I can still, you know, be a part of the temple practices with temple prostitutes, with temple food. Doesn't really matter because I'm a Christian. Paul's going to take this up in the Corinthian letter at great length. What does it mean to be a Christian and to have sensitivity to these elements that are clearly identified with paganism. The council here is not passing legalistic rules. They're not picking their favorite rules and then rejecting someone else's favorite rule of circumcision. They're simply saying in this letter to the church made up of Jew and Gentile, hey, you Jews need to be careful. You have these deeply ingrained customs that you're trying to bring to the table and you're expecting others to keep them but you Gentiles also need to be careful because you're bringing some of your pagan influence into the church and it doesn't belong. So everybody, take a good long look at Jesus and see what it would look like to imitate him. Once you're in God's family, you will live differently than you did before. For you Jews, that means... There are some things that are falling away. For you Gentiles, some things that are falling away. For you Jews, it was ritual and custom. For you Gentiles, it's pagan practice. All of you put aside what you used to be and how you used to look and now start looking like Christ. 
It's biblical common sense. Take on the family resemblance. Look like your father. We know this from verse 30 and 31. This letter goes out. The letter's unfolded there for us. Judas and Silas take this message to all these churches, recounting how the council decided on this matter. And in verse 30, they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. No one in Antioch, when they heard this letter, circumcision isn't required, but be careful about these pagan practices. Nobody cried foul, like, this is legalism. They're, they're giving us all these rules. No, they said they rejoiced because this was encouraging. What does that mean for rules that are cited, give up pagan practice? The reality is, They were living a life of transformation. God had drawn them to Christ. Their hearts have been made alive. They've repented and believed. They're adopted into the family of God. And now they want to live for him. They are no longer slaves to pagan practice. They are free from that. And this letter only validates that freedom. It's saying, as Paul would say to the Galatians, stand fast in the liberty that you have in Christ. You're free from that past, Jewish believer. You're free from those pagan influences, Gentile believer. This was good news. And that's our last point. Getting the gospel right stirs joy. It stirs joy. Our text began with joy. Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles brought great joy to all the brothers. Verse 3. Our text concludes in verse 31 that when they had read this letter from the church, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced that the gospel is all of grace. They rejoiced that their lives could be all about God. Not my Jewish background, not my Gentile background. That does not define me anymore. I am in Christ, and this is good news. Imagine being one of these Corinthians that had lived your life in pagan immorality, trashed your family or multiple families, lived only for self. And now you receive this letter, and it's saying, this is all of God's grace, and now your life is all for God. They could could bask in that grace and realize they are not defined by pagan past or Jewish past, but by the life of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Getting the gospel right stirs joy. This is good news that we have. So as you witness to the good news of Jesus this week, Make sure you're getting the gospel right. You're not inviting people to be a part of your church and to dress like you and to have the habits you have. Not yet, anyway. All that comes later by God's grace and his promise to change us from the moment of our salvation till Jesus comes. Right now, you're just throwing the life preserver. You're not explaining to the drowning person like what it's going to be when you get on the boat and we're going to have to get you out of those wet clothes and get you something dry and get you a good meal. No, it's just 
Get them out. Rescue. Give them the good news. God will take care of all the rest. Get the gospel right. Witness to the truth that God will do for sinners what they cannot do for themselves. And he does it through Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for this debate that raged, for the truth that settled the debate, that truth being the vast love of God for sinners, Jew and Gentile alike, to bring them into his family, to make them look like his son, to give them everlasting joy in his presence. Lord, we long for this kind of hope and peace to stabilize our own lives and to revolutionize the lives of the unbelievers that we know, we care about. So give us courage to speak of Jesus, this one in whom we have found rest and peace and forgiveness and belonging, adoption, hope. Make us faithful witnesses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.